0: On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of Jessica Curran, who was 18 years old when she was found brutally murdered on August 1st, 2000 in Mayfield, Kentucky. Two days before, Jessica told her parents she was having friends over to her new apartment and asked if they could watch her seven-month-old son. The next day, when they arrived at her apartment to pick her up for church, Jessica was not there. Two days later, her body was found behind the local middle school. She had been murdered and set on fire. It would take years before police were able to figure out what happened to Jessica that night and find out who was responsible. This is Jessica's story. This week's story is a very complicated story. There's so much information, so much speculation, and for some, still a lot of unanswered questions. The brutal murder of an 18-year-old girl in a small town in Kentucky was shocking, but the years that followed exposed how scandal, corruption, and murder are not just big city problems. I will warn you that some of the details of this case are disturbing. Mayfield, Kentucky is a small town located in Graves County, about three hours from Louisville, not far from the Tennessee border. It's where Jessica had grown up. She was born November 29, 1981, to her parents, Joe and Jean Kern. She had two brothers and a sister. For the most part, it appears that Jessica grew up in a pretty normal household and had a typical small town childhood. When she was nine, the family moved to a ranch-style home on some farmland about eight miles outside of Mayfield. It's not clear what Jean did for a living, but Joe was a firefighter in Mayfield. Described as friendly and outgoing by her father, he said that Jessica would help organize family dinners and she enjoyed taking pictures and filming her brother's sporting events. After middle school, where she ran track and was a cheerleader, Jessica attended Graves County High School, but during her freshman year, Jessica got into some serious trouble. According to her parents, in an interview that they did with the Courier-Journal in Louisville, Jessica had gotten into an argument with a boy at school when he pulled out a homemade knife on her. Jessica, who had a box cutter, pulled it out to defend herself, but she ended up getting suspended and for 6 months had to go to an alternative school in a neighboring town the following year she was able to return to graves high school but she was now a year behind her friends and the transition back was difficult in 1999 when jessica was just 17 she found out that she was pregnant and in december of that year she gave birth to a little boy that she named zion it's not clear when but Jessica ended up dropping out of high school. A few months after her son was born, a paternity test revealed that the young man that she thought was Zion's father wasn't. And her parents said that when she found out the results, Jessica was understandably upset. Now, who that young man was or what their relationship was like is unknown. But Joe said that the next day, Jessica told her parents that She wanted to move out. Her parents believed that her decision to move out of their home was driven by her desire to no longer live under their rules. By then, 18-year-old Jessica wanted the freedom of living on her own. But Joe and Jean begged their daughter not to move out. They worried that she was too young to live on her own. But Jessica persisted. And in mid-July she moved into an apartment in Mayfield. After not completing high school, Jessica had made the move towards getting her GD. She had even taken the practice exam, which she had done well on. Her goal was to go to the community college in Paducah when she got it. Jessica settled into her new apartment, and the manager said that she was quiet, a good tenant who was always with her son. While living there she befriended a young woman named Lindsay and the two became close. Lindsay told the Courier-Journal that they had similar goals and had even enrolled at the community college together for that fall. But she also said that being young, they tended to hang out with quote-unquote bad boys. Now, not long after moving out, Jessica confided in her mother, who she now believed was the father of her son. She told her mom that the man's name was Jeremy Adams, a white guy who lived in Mayfield and had a history of committing crimes and doing drugs. According to Tom Holland's reporting for the BBC, Jessica told her mom that Jeremy had raped her, and that's how she got pregnant. Jeremy, however, later denied that he raped Jessica. He also said that he was unaware that she was even pregnant or anything about a baby until after her murder. But the details of the alleged rape are not known, and I didn't find any information about whether or not Jessica or her parents ever went to police about the allegations. At some point, however, Jessica began seeing a young man named Carlos Sexton, and according to him, although they had only been dating for a few weeks— He really liked Jessica, and they had begun making plans to eventually move in together. Her adolescence had been challenging, but by the year 2000, it seemed as if Jessica's life was heading in the right direction, and her future was looking promising. But a few weeks after moving out of her parents' home into her own apartment, Jessica's life was brutally cut short. On July 29th, 2000, Jessica asked her parents, Joe and Jean, if they would watch Zion for her so she could have some friends over at her apartment. After living in the apartment for a couple weeks, she wanted to have a kid-free Saturday night with some girlfriends. And so her parents agreed to watch Zion, who was seven months old at the time, so that the daughter could have some fun. The plan was for them to come back to the apartment the next morning to pick Jessica up so they could all go to church together. But the next morning, when her family came to pick her up for church, Jessica was not home. Her parents went on to church. They didn't know where Jessica was, but they figured that she would turn up soon. But when they went back to her apartment later that morning, she was still not home. Day turned to night, and there was still no sign of Jessica. By Monday, July 31st, her mom, Jean, was starting to get worried. She told the courier Journal, quote, I knew something was wrong. No way Jesse is not going to check on this baby, referring to Jessica's son, Zion. Joe said that he was reluctant to go to the police because he didn't think that they could do anything about it. At the time, he was serving as both the fire department lieutenant and the Graves County Sheriff's Department bailiff, and so he just didn't think that he should report it yet. He believed that Jessica would be back. But two days after their daughter was last seen a gruesome discovery was made behind the Mayfield Middle School. On August 1st, 2000, at around 9.30 a.m., Mayfield police received a call from a teacher at the local middle school, and she had stumbled upon a horrific scene. The badly burned body of a black woman was against the black wall behind the school. The body was badly decomposed, There was a clump of hair about 20 feet away from it and a bottle that smelled like gasoline at her feet. Her underwear had been torn off and there was a braided belt wrapped around her neck. The description of what the body looked like sounds like something out of a horror movie. The cop that arrived on the scene was a man named Tim Fortner a patrolman who was 31 years old at the time and had no experience investigating a homicide. When he arrived and saw the horrifying scene at the middle school, he had no idea what to do. He said when he first saw the body, he thought it was a mannequin. But as he got closer and saw the flies, he realized that it was a human being. Quote, I didn't have a clue what to do next. I had no idea how to organize a crime scene or look for forensic evidence. Frankly, I was scared stiff, he told the Independent. Officer Fortner's lack of knowledge about how to properly process a crime scene would be the first in a series of errors by the Mayfield Police Department, but it would be far from the last. In a small town... It doesn't take long for information to spread, and soon the town was buzzing with people talking about a body that was found behind the middle school. When Jessica's parents heard about the body, they knew it was time to go to the police station. Once there, Jean said that police showed them pictures and asked them if their daughter wore any jewelry. One of the pictures was a hand, and Jean knew it belonged to her daughter. They would have to wait for an autopsy to confirm, but at that point, Gene and Joe were sure that police had found Jessica. At the crime scene, there was a substantial amount of evidence. Like I said, there was a plastic bottle that was reeking of gasoline near her feet. There was also that clump of hair. But there was also evidence that couldn't be recovered due to the body being set on fire. However, you could see that she had been hit in the head and that her nose had been broken. Fortner collected the items found at the scene so that they could be tested for DNA and fingerprints. He also collected fingernails, strands of hair that were found inside the hand of the body, and the gas can so that they could be sent downtown for testing. The body was taken to the local medical examiner's office so a positive ID could be made and the M.E. was able to confirm that the body, in fact, belonged to Jessica. Her murder had been an agonizing one. Jessica had been beaten, stabbed, and then drowned in gasoline and set on fire. Because her underwear had been torn, police suspected that she had been sexually assaulted, but because of the significant burns to the body, they were unable to determine at that time that she had been raped. The investigation into Jessica's murder was doomed from the start. The evidence that was collected was poorly handled by Fortner and the Mayfield Police Department. Important things, like the clump of hair found near her body, were lost. The evidence bag that Fortner had placed the hair in just never made it downtown. The items that did make it to the lab yielded not one fingerprint. And... Not long after her body was found, the dress that Jessica had been wearing was thrown away. It was extreme negligence on behalf of the police that, from the start, caused valuable evidence to be missed or lost. As part of their investigation, police, however, did interview people that knew Jessica in an attempt to gather information about her life and what she was doing before her murder. Two of the people they interviewed a few days after Jessica was found were two teenage girls that said they were friends of hers and had been with her the night she was last seen. One of the girls, named Venetia Stubberfield, who was 16 at the time, gave police a written statement in which she said that Jessica, along with a group of people, were at Venetia's aunt's house playing cards and hanging out. She said that they left her aunt's house and walked to her house in South Mayfield. Venetia told police that they stayed there until about 2 a.m. and then began walking back towards her aunt's house. But she said that Jessica told them that she was going home and started walking towards her apartment. Venetia said she told Jessica to call her when she got home, but she never heard from her. After news about Jessica's murder spread through town, the rumors followed. One of the rumors was that Jessica had been a confidential drug informant, something police denied. Now, the possibility that this was drug-related seemed kind of plausible considering the heinousness of the murder. It was reminiscent of something that a hardcore drug cartel would do, but there were plenty of other rumors. The one that began to stick, at least for police, was involving Jeremy Adams. The man Jessica alleged was her son's father. And People in town began to suspect that Jeremy killed Jessica and the motive was the fact that she was threatening to tell his girlfriend about the baby. When police began to focus on Jeremy, months had passed since Jessica's brutal murder. But after speaking to him, they began to narrow in on him as a suspect. And When Jeremy was arrested, they believed that they had their killer. But they were wrong. On August 1st, 2000, the body of 18-year-old Jessica Curran was found dead behind the Mayfield Middle School. From the beginning, police mishandled evidence. But a few months after the murder, they began to focus on the man Jessica alleged was the father of her child. But when police and the public believe they got the killer, this case is turned upside down. After Jessica's body was discovered, the evidence that did make it to the lab was tested but had yielded no results. But other important evidence was simply lost. And some of the important evidence was even contaminated at one point, DNA swabs from two different cases ended up in the same box with Jessica's case. But rumors around town involving Jeremy Adams, the man Jessica said was her son's father, claimed that he killed her. It was six months before police decided to speak to Jeremy. By that time, he had been locked up for unrelated offenses and was in a local jail. It's not clear why it took police so long to speak to Jeremy, but Fortner, who was the cop who was first on the scene, despite his inexperience, was now leading the investigation and he went to speak to Jeremy. And during their interview, Jeremy denied involvement in Jessica's murder. According to him, he wasn't even aware that there was a baby and claimed he had a one-night stand with Jessica. Fortner, however, decided that he would show Jeremy the crime scene photos. He said that he showed him in an attempt to help his memory. But Jeremy didn't confess. After he went back to his cell, he confided in his cellmate about the horrific crime scene photos he had seen. The cellmate, who was known to be a police informant, told what Jeremy had told him. A few days after Jeremy had that conversation, the cellmate told a correction officer that Jeremy had confessed to Jessica's murder. He said that Jeremy said things and had details that suggested that he was the killer. The fact that he had been shown the crime scene photos was not taken into consideration. On February 14th, 2001, Jeremy Adams, after being indicted by a grand jury, was charged with murder and tampering with evidence. Despite not having any physical evidence or any witnesses, police had concluded that based on the information from the jailhouse informant that they had enough of a case to prove that Jeremy was the killer. Two days later, another arrest was made. The same grand jury that indicted Jeremy also indicted Carlos Saxon. And if you remember, earlier in the story, Carlos was a young man that Jessica had begun dating shortly before her murder. Carlos' arrest came as a shock. Now, while most people in Mayfield had already suspected Jeremy's involvement, Carlos didn't seem to have been on anybody's suspect list. It was also strange that her current boyfriend would have been an accomplice to her child's father in her murder. but. According to police, they received an anonymous call to Crime Stoppers that Carlos was with Jeremy the night of the murder, and that he was a known associate of Jeremy's. Carlos, however, denied even knowing Jeremy, and like Jeremy, police didn't have any physical evidence against Carlos either. The police at the time alleged that Jessica had been walking home from a party when she was approached by Jeremy, who led her to the middle school where he killed her, and that Carlos either helped commit the crime or helped cover it up. But all of the evidence police had was circumstantial and was supported only by the sketchy testimony of jailhouse informants. Jessica's family, however, was relieved when Jeremy and Carlos were arrested, Her father told the local paper that he was thankful to the police for working so quickly to solve this case. Little did they know that their search for justice was far from over. On February 13, 2003, the day before Jeremy Adams' trial was set to begin, the judge in the case dismissed the charges against him. It had come to light that police had knowingly withheld evidence from Jeremy's defense attorney. Apparently, police were in possession of 18 pieces of evidence that they did not turn over. That evidence included an interview with a teenage girl who claimed that she had been the one who killed Jessica. Police claimed that they had concluded that the girl was lying and therefore didn't need to give it to the defense. Unfortunately, during discovery, you don't get to make those kind of choices. The actions of the police infuriated the judge, and he said he was tempted to put Tim Fortner, who was the assistant chief of police at the time, in jail over his actions. After all the charges were dropped against Jeremy, the charges were also dropped against Carlos. After Jeremy and Carlos were let go, police found themselves back at square one. In late February 2003, the Mayfield police handed the case over to the Kentucky State Police. Fortner, who had led the failed investigation to that point, resigned after the charges against Jeremy and Carlos were dismissed. Despite the fact that the case was taken over by the KSP, the case went nowhere. After so much time was spent prosecuting the wrong men, they were now working from behind. Not to mention all the evidence that had been lost or contaminated. It was a mess to say the least. People in the community, however, were consumed by Jessica's murder. The brutality, the rumors, the arrest, and still no one had been found guilty of Jessica's murder. One of those people was a woman named Susan Galbraith. Susan like many in Mayfield, was struck by the case and had started on a mission to solve Jessica's murder. She began on her own gathering police records and speaking to witnesses. As part of her investigation, she reached out to Tom Holland, an investigative reporter for the BBC, asking him to look into this case. And what Tom Holland found would be the key to unlocking the mystery of who really killed Jessica and what exactly happened to her that night on July 29th, 2000. Tom looked into the evidence that had been kept from the defense in Jeremy's case and found out that Fortner had been running a separate investigation into Jessica's murder. He had identified two men that he believed picked Jessica up that night and murdered her. Shortly after her body was found, a girl named Victoria Caldwell, a friend of Venetia Stepperfield, the friend who said that she last saw Jessica walking home, told police a completely different story. She said that Venetia told her that Jessica went their separate ways that night, but a white car with two men pulled up and Venetia got in. She said that she then directed the driver toward Jessica where they also picked her up. Venetia then said that Jessica and the two men got into an argument and that she got out of the car because she didn't want to be involved. Tom also found out that Fortner had also spoken to several neighbors in the apartment complex where Jessica lived, and a few of them claimed that Venetia had details about the murder that were not public at the time. Fortner said that he believed that Venetia had details that only someone involved in the murder would have. Subsequently, he charged Venetia, who was a minor at the time, with criminal facilitation to commit murder. He said that her knowledge showed that she had been criminally deceptive. It was nine weeks after Jessica's murder, on October 20th, when Venetia was arrested. But after Venetia's arrest, Victoria began receiving threats about testifying against Venetia or providing evidence to police. As a precaution, Victoria and her mother were placed into protective custody. But just before Venetia's trial was set to begin, Victoria recanted her statement, and she and her mother left Kentucky and moved to California. With Victoria gone, the charges against Venetia were dropped. But Victoria's statement wasn't the only interesting thing Fortner found the weeks following Jessica's murder. He learned that night that there was a party being held at the home of a local man named Greg Starks. There were about seven people gathered at his home drinking and allegedly doing drugs. And one of the people at the party was a man from out of town named Quincy Cross. People at the party reported that Quincy had been acting strange all night and kept saying that he wanted to find women. He was saying it over and over. But Greg said that around 5 a.m., Quincy asked him if he could borrow his car. He said that he needed to go see one of his girls. But three hours later, at around 7.50, Quincy is spotted by a police officer after the car that Greg had loaned him had broken down. The officer approached Quincy and questioned him. The cop said that he immediately noticed that Quincy's pants smelled like gasoline. The cop also noticed that Quincy was not wearing a belt, and in the back seat, he had a gas canister, which Greg said didn't belong to him. Quincy gave the cop a fake name, date of birth, and a fake social security number. When Quincy went back to Greg's house, he too said Quincy smelled like gasoline and also noticed that he wasn't wearing the belt that he had on before he left, a belt that he described as being similar to the one used in Jessica's murder. Not long after Quincy returned to the house, Greg said that another man named Austin Leach came to the house and spoke to Quincy. Austin also drove a white car. A Fortner did interview Quincy after receiving this information, but he denied any involvement and refused to answer any more questions by police. But despite the compelling evidence police had about these alternate suspects, they still decided to pursue charges against Jeremy and Carlos and then withheld critical evidence resulting in the charges against them being dismissed. It's hard to understand what Fortner and the Mayfield Police Department were thinking, but Tom Holland's investigation had turned this case in a whole new direction. For years, rumors had swirled around this case, but This was the first time that someone actually presented facts that might lead to Jessica's killer. In 2006, the Kentucky Bureau of Investigation got involved in this case after Joe, Jessica's father, was able to convince the state attorney to reassign the case. Having the resources from the KBI meant that there would hopefully be more effort put into solving Jessica's murder. But Susan Galbraith, after contacting Tom, was continuing her investigation. As part of her work, she set up a website to inform people about the case and to receive tips. Now, seven months after the KBI took over the investigation, Susan received a message on her website. The message was sent from California, and the young woman said that she had information about Jessica's murder. When Susan saw the name, She knew exactly who she was. Victoria Caldwell. Victoria said that she was scared, but she needed to talk to someone about what she knew. She said the secret that she had been keeping was weighing on her conscience. After some convincing, she gave Susan her number, and she told Susan that she knew exactly what happened to Jessica and was there the night that she was murdered. After speaking to her, Susan gave the information to the KBI, who immediately made contact with Victoria and then flew to California to speak to her directly. When police speak to Victoria, she tells a different story than the one she told Fortner seven years earlier. This time, Victoria told police that Jessica had been walking home when Quincy picked her up. She said that she was in the back seat, And after he picked Jessica up, he began sexually assaulting her. Victoria said that Jessica tried to fight him off, but Quincy pulled over and then grabbed a small baseball bat that he kept underneath the seat and began beating Jessica until she was unconscious. He then dragged her into the house, where Venetia Stubberfield was already with two other people. Victoria said that Quincy then sexually assaulted Jessica and then tied his belt around her neck, strangling her, and then he beat her to death. She told investigators that she and Venetia wanted to leave, but that Quincy made everyone participate in the assault so that no one would go to police. After Jessica was dead, they hid the body in a shed until it began to smell, and so that's when they moved it to the school and set it on fire. After Victoria's statement, police went to speak to Venetia, who at first denied any involvement in Jessica's murder. But after several hours of questioning, she eventually admitted to being involved and cooperated much of Victoria's story. However, there were a lot of contradictions in the women's statements, both of each other and themselves. But police believed that there was enough of their stories that did line up to believe that they had found the people involved in Jessica's murder. In March 2007, Quincy Cross and the two other people that were identified as being at the house that night and participating in the murder, Tamara Caldwell and Jeffrey Burton, were all arrested and charged with Jessica's murder. Two months later, both Venetia and Victoria pled guilty to abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. Victoria was given five years and Venetia seven. They both agreed to testify against the other defendants in the case. In March 2008, Quincy was the first to go on trial. Venetia and Victoria were the prosecution's star witnesses. Despite their history of lying, The prosecution had a mostly circumstantial case, but it was hard for the defense to overcome the self-incriminating testimony of the two women. The defense tried to highlight the fact that the two women were proven liars, and they argued that the real killers were the first men charged with the murder. The defense tried their best to create reasonable doubt, but ultimately failed. Quincy Cross was found guilty. And in April 2008, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In September 2008, both Jeffrey Burton and Tamara Caldwell entered Alford pleas for second-degree murder and tampering with evidence. An Alford plea means that a person is not admitting that they are guilty, but acknowledging that the evidence against them would result in a guilty verdict. Jeffrey Burton was sentenced to 15 years and Tamara Caldwell was given 10. In an interview after he was found guilty, Quincy denied that he had ever even met Jessica. He also said that he didn't know Jeffrey or Tamara in 2000 and he said that he moved to Mayfield after the murder, saying that it made no sense for him to move to a place where he had committed a murder. In 2016, Quincy appealed his conviction. He said that in the years since his trial, Victoria and Venetia had recanted their testimony and that they had lied to police several times about the events that night. He also claimed in his appeal that Joe, Jessica's dad, did not believe that he was guilty. Now, that appeal was subsequently denied and It's not clear if he had filed any other new ones since. At one point, it appears that the Innocence Project had looked into Quincy's case, but ultimately did not decide to investigate. There have been people who have been advocating for Quincy's freedom. There's a website and a change.org petition that was created in 2022, and it does seem, at least from what I could find, that Joe Curran does believe that Quincy may be innocent. However, as of today, Quincy Cross is in prison serving out his life sentence. Jessica Curran, the young woman at the center of this story, was a young mother who was just trying to figure life out. The fact that her life ended in such a brutal way is devastating. And the fact that the people that she thought were her friends participated in it is heartbreaking. There are a lot of things that went wrong in this case. A lot of time wasted and a lot of mistakes made. And although we may never know exactly what happened to Jessica that night, we know that she did not deserve what happened to her. May Jessica Curran Rest and peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Threads. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death